Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Saifdina Moose, the author of The Bitcoin Standard. We talk about the university system, how money has made it highly inefficient, and how the internet is routing around it. Saifdina also tells us about how government money has made colleges into ineffective research institutions and how PhD students are abused as cheap labor. Safety to moose. How's everything going these days? Things are good, Jimmy. Things are going very well. I'm uh, busy at work on two books uh, that I've been working on for a while now. Principles of Economics, a textbook on economics and uh, the fiat standard, which is uh, the sequel to the Bitcoin standard. So these are taking up uh, most of my time. Like a true academic. And uh, speaking of which, you, you've been in uh, academia for quite a while. Uh, can you tell us the story of how you got into it and uh, what, what led you to that road? Well, I was, I think, three years old when my parents marched me into kindergarten. And I only managed to extricate myself out of that vicious cycle of dependency on the academic system. Uh, last year, when I quit my job as a university professor, I basically went from kindergarten to school, university, back to working at a university um, up until last year when I uh, quit my job as a university professor and uh, became uh, essentially an independent entrepreneur uh, teaching economics on my own website uh, to um, students from all over the world and focusing on my own writing and research. I've developed a lot of misgivings about the educational system, as uh, you and I have discussed. And, and readers who are familiar with my book will identify uh, the, um, the connection here is that I can see the impact of fake money on academia, uh, on, on easy money, money that is uh, produced at a low opportunity cost or at a zero opportunity cost almost, is quite corrupting of um, the process of academic inquiry. It's, it's quite disillusioning uh, and, and the outcomes of the process are quite mediocre because of that. Uh, mediocre to start off being flattering, at least. Yeah, you're getting into some of the problems with college education. But before we get into that, why do you think people get into a college education? Because as far as I can tell, there's a glut of supply. There's so many people that want to be professors, almost no jobs. So what, what's going on there? Why, why is there this imbalance? I think ultimately the root cause of the imbalance is government intervention in the academic system. And of course, this is uh, almost sounds like it, it's a caricature response, but you know, it also happens to be true in all of these cases. When you prevent uh, producers and consumers of products from interacting freely with one another, you develop all these artificial rules and restrictions and all these interventions in wherein um, taxpayer money or fiat money is used to make market decisions effectively in the hands of the people who are able to command money that they haven't worked for, then you're distorting the institution from working toward the people that is supposedly intended to serve and turning it into an institution that works more to serve the people that are financing it with the low opportunity cost money. Yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of money in academia. I, I think I heard like third party payers or, you know, student loan givers, like essentially set the agenda in many ways. Can you talk a little bit more about that and many other problems with college education today? What What is wrong with, with the mission that they originally had versus what students are getting now? 
Well, I, I guess I, I'll, um, let's just focus a little bit uh, perhaps on the way in which uh, the incentives are corrupted, perhaps. Then we can discuss the consequences of it because I think uh, identifying, uh, I, you know, contrary to Keynesian belief, I, I, uh, to Keynesians and Keynes who used to think it's not important to understand the causes of things, it's important to understand the solutions. I'm one of these old-fashioned people who thinks causes matter. The ultimate distortion in in this case, to go back to your original question, is that there's an enormous amount of government subsidy given for college education. And, uh, you know, we can, at some point, there are all kinds of different um, sociological explanations and cultural explanations of why it is that uh, government wants to subsidize this thing. But putting all of that aside, thinking from the economics of it, we have to understand that once you're making it so that loans in the college industry are cheaper to acquire and easier to acquire, then you're distorting people's uh, incentives. So if your ability to borrow to start a business is difficult, but your ability to borrow to go and get a college degree is much easier, this is distorting your economic calculation. You know, you're constantly trying to get price signals from the market. You never have full knowledge and full information of what is going on. You're always trying to, you know, make the most out of the knowledge that is available for you. When these prices are distorted by effectively by the ability of fiat money to uh, enter these markets and distort capital allocation, then it distorts people's incentives. And so more and more people are likely to consider college when getting a loan for college is almost like a birthright, you know? Any, well, not exactly, but I mean, it's easier than other things. Although the notion of making college debt uh, a birthright is popular in some areas, I would say. But effectively, it is, uh, as you and I, I think, would agree, it is effectively a form of uh, being born into slavery because you're, being, you're getting everybody into debt for college. There's always an opportunity cost. I think that's really the key thing. There is always an opportunity cost to it. And um, distorting prices and distorting incentives manipulates people, people's uh, calculations and leads to them making erroneous calculations. And that's we see it in every market. And I see no reason why this would not happen in the education market and in, in capital markets in general. Yeah, and we, we've seen the growth of colleges. Most of them charge way more money than they used to, and in large part because these loans are available. Uh, wh- what do you think that does to the actual education experience of the student? One way to look at it is that when you're creating a bureaucratic incentive for one of those things, it, it sounds like a nice ideal. You know, let's finance this thing with credit money and then we'll have more of it. You know, let's finance more college or more hospitals or more health care and then we get more of it. But really what you're doing is that you're manipulating people's economic calculation. This is definitely true that a lot of colleges are able to spend a lot more money because of the existence of these student loans. We've seen in the past uh, 20, 30 years how college tuition has gone up tremendously and they're able to get uh, a tremendous amount of capital allocation, uh, you know, probably not in proportion to the value that they're actually providing. So how does that affect the student experience? How does that you know, change the incentives for the students? What ends up happening when you subsidize any kind of business, it starts off with the nice intentions that you know, we'd get more college, we'd get more college degrees, and so therefore we'd have better qualified labor force and higher productivity and better income. But 
in reality, once you've made it so that it is a government objective for money to be spent in this regard, then you've created a source of income that is free from market competition. You've created a bunch of jobs where people can get a salary without having to satisfy customers. And you've created incentives for people to take on specific jobs that do not produce value for consumer, but they are able to secure for the funding from the funders. And so I think you see this happening in um, bureaucracies all over, and it is outlined by um, academic economists from universities who apply this framework to the study of industries all over the world and to uh, cartels all over the world, but hesitate somehow for understandable reasons to apply it to their own profession because, you know, uh, their salaries depended on it. What ends up happening in this situation is that it's possible for a a bureaucracy to emerge in these um, institutions whose focus is on continuing to do what is required politically, both in the sense of domestic politics as well as in the sense of the running of the organization itself, rather than satisfying the consumers. You know, you've you've established a, a group of jobs that are detached from the uh, bottom line, in a sense, and that have different incentives, because it's not about securing the students in as much as it is securing the uh, low interest rate loans. And so I think if you look throughout the years, what is happening is that we're getting a massive increase in the tuition. There's also a massive increase in the number of degrees and in the number of universities. And so you would expect that because we're getting so many more universities, that prices would be dropping. You know, in the same way we have many more TVs and laptops, we're always making more stuff. And so the new stuff, the new stuff continues to get cheaper over time as it gets older. You would expect that with universities, with so many universities out there, that you would get a competition that brings down the supply, that you would have a lot more education going on and at a lower price. But instead, what we find is the price continues to go up. Part of that, as we said, is because of the availability of low credit. But also, if you look at the expenses, you see that the majority of the increase in spending in universities has gone toward administrative roles. And so the growing politicization of the university and the growing need for uh, just a large institutional apparatus in order to make the university continue to run ends up becoming just an an increase in bureaucratic bloat of uh, people who are uh, dependent uh, on these jobs and they don't necessarily add much value. One idea that keeps coming to me is that why is it that we've not really seen proper entrepreneurship in university setting emerge? Like we haven't seen a Steve Jobs of universities. We haven't seen university administrators who have managed to get their university to issue um, great degrees at a cheaper price or, you know, making these enormous uh, improvements. We just see growing increase in price and effectively a setting where uh, bureaucratically and organizationally the uh, power in the university structure is becoming more and more in the hands of the bureaucracy and the operation of the university is more about the bureaucracy rather than the professors or the students. And uh, I think, you know, the the exciting thing about the uh, internet is that um, it fixes this. 
Well, so a question for you about uh, these college administrators, uh, which by every metric, they've been growing like gangbusters at every college. Why is it that when there is a lot more funds, like that that tends to be the case, that you get a lot more administrators um, in any sort of organization? I know this is true for colleges like we've been talking about, but it's also true of government, of healthcare, of a lot of different things. It, it seems like they're they almost always kind of show up somehow whenever you have a lot of extra money. Yeah, I think ultimately it's just whenever you have, as I was saying earlier, jobs that are protected from competition, uh, these, these are people get into those jobs and then their incentives are wrapped from producing value to consumers and, and, and changed into um, focusing on uh, survival in the institution. You know, you don't have to satisfy consumers every day. You're not facing the pressure of the consumer or at least the pressure from somebody who is in your organization facing the consumer. You're facing increasingly bureaucratic and political pressure for your job. And so the bad thing about those jobs is that they're not productive. The worst thing is that they can't be eliminated. You know, it's uh, because you can't kill what is uh, undead or whatever it is that that cliche goes. There's You can't deprive those people from your money because, you know, it's not like you're giving them your money willingly anyway they get it through the uh, money printer directly and try and stop that from working if you can. (laughs) I wish we could. We're creating a lot more college degrees and we're creating a lot more people that are educated and things like that. What that's kind of led to in the economy is an over-education of the workforce. I think I I read somewhere that about 60% of the jobs out there, like the workers have way too much education for it. Like if you're uh, flipping burgers at McDonald's or something like that. You don't even need a high school education, but oftentimes they, they'll have a college education or something like that. So uh, how does that affect the economy and civilization and so on? I mean, I think it's, um, it's, it's, it's not really so much of an uh, over-education in as much as it is a mismatch of jobs and skills, because if your degree won't help you get a higher salary on the market, then it was not really a degree. It was not an investment. It was a, it was a consumer good. It was, you know, you went to college to enjoy yourself more or less uh, one way or the other. And it could be intellectually, you know, you wanted to enjoy yourself where you're writing essays about interesting topics for four years. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, But, you know, you can't really think about it as being a job qualification. It has to help you get a better job. And I think, in my mind, there's nothing wrong with, you know, working at a McDonald's or uh, flipping burgers or serving coffee at Starbucks. But I think the problem is that people had wasted a lot of their lives before getting that stage. I think the real cost of college is beyond just the tuition, more, more, much more important than just the tuition, is that the cost of college is those really important formative years of 18 to 22, when you, basically you're at the peak of your physical uh, powers almost, or you're extremely young. You can live extremely rough compared to you know when you are younger or compared to when you're going to be older it's the time for you to take advantage of that to the most by learning the most by being exposed the most and i think that really is the time for people to be out there in the world learning uh, useful trades and if you uh, if you want to succeed in college that's 4 years in which you're effectively 
isolated from useful trades, isolated from the real world, isolated from real work. I mean, obviously not all college degrees are isolated, but a lot of them involve, and, and even the ones that are not, you know, there's still a lot of curriculum that is um, really uh, irrelevant to job skills. Not to say that this is not something that you should, should not learn. Learning is one thing, but getting a degree is something else. And I think the internet is helping us unpack these, where the opportunity cost now is becoming clearer to me. And I remember speaking to some of my students a few years ago at university. They had done their undergraduate and they'd done their master's degree. And they still had that question of, I don't know what I want to do. They, they would have known what they had wanted to do at the age of 22 or 23 when they'd finished their master's degree if they'd spent the previous years out there in, in, in the real world working, learning skills. I think when you think about the amount of time that you spend in college and you think about the amount of knowledge that is available for you for free or for close to free online, and the amount of knowledge you could gain from working in the real world, from engaging in the labor market and from working with people and seeing what is going on in different industries and so on. When you, when you factor that, I think the cost of college becomes extremely high. It, and it's, uh, it, it, it makes less and less sense, I think, with time because the alternative is really attractive. I, I remember telling one of my students that in these six years, they could have, I remember asking one of them, what, what, what would you ideally want to work in? And they said something about, you know, probably own a restaurant or something in the hospitality business. And I th- and I said, you know, if you'd, uh, when you finished high school, if you'd started working as a waiter at a restaurant um, and worked your way up, and then during those six years, you know, you worked as a waiter and you learned things online, kept on uh, studying whatever interests you on the side and learning the skills that are needed for a business. Think about all of the money that you'd paid at university. Think about all of that time, how much you would learn in six years working your way up from a waiter at a restaurant, uh, plus all of this money that, you're, that you'd spent at college, and imagine what you could do with it right now. I think that's really the opportunity cost of college. It's becoming an increasingly expensive indulgence at a time when all the knowledge that you want is available online. And in the real world, what you need to be doing is figuring out a way to add value to people's lives in the real world or online in order to secure an income from that. And I think too much of people's thinking over the past few decades has been um, distracted by the need to go through the station of college before you are able to enter the labor market. When I think it's uh, it's not necessarily true. Uh, so uh, that that brings up an interesting idea for me, uh, which is that uh, they a lot of people do spend something like six to eight years in uh, college and grad school and so on. And we also have a glut of PhDs. I I, I honestly wonder how many of them are continuing in that education market, almost kind of like because they've already invested a significant amount of time and money into it. Do you see that as a factor at all in the number of PhDs that are being produced by these universities? Absolutely. And I think the market is skewed in the case of PhDs because effectively PhDs are cheap labor for universities. They can teach as well as the professors, if not better, because most professors are terrible at teaching because uh, teaching is not really important for your promotion or for your ability to keep your job. Like Nobody really cares about what you do in your teaching. Uh, and a lot of very good professors are 
terrible teachers. When I say very good, I mean in the sense of being able to produce academic research, because that's what matters. So universities are far more focused on uh, producing academic research in the top journals, because that's what gets them the research funding and the grants from government mostly. This then encourages them to continue to hire more and more undergraduates to help with um, the teaching rather than professors. Because if they hire professors that are good with teaching, then they, they don't get to succeed based on the fiat metrics of how many articles and how many journals. That's ultimately what matters the most for them, the rankings and the metrics and the funding that is entailed with, from that. So on the other hand, graduate students are able to offer essentially cheap labor because they don't require a, an expensive... They're cheap for the universities because the alternative is professors who come with tenure and come with a lot of baggage, effectively. You know, it's a long-term commitment and tenure and so on. And so, obviously, universities are incentivized to put more and more of their uh, work in the hands of in the hands of PhD students, so incentivized to give a lot of programs, create a lot of PhD programs. And it secures them funding and it gets a lot of students to do work for free. But the problem is that, you know, there, there's just not that much market demand for people who have a PhD in many of those fields. And even in the fields for which there is market demand, a lot of the work ends up being to a large extent, largely irrelevant. I mean, it proves your competence that you have obtained a PhD in this topic. But if you'd spent that time working on something in the market, uh, trying to satisfy people's needs, you would prove your competence in a much more valuable way than a PhD. And B, you would probably financially benefit from it more. And I think more importantly, you would learn a lot more if you're out there in the market, facing the pressure of delivering products in the market and delivering things that people want. I think that teaches more. And I think that the opportunity cost of being at university after you work is very high. Yeah, uh, you're describing, I think, what what's kind of common in universities is that uh, the teaching aspect, which is what essentially students are paying for, is separated from this sort of like weird status game of, uh, of doing research and getting grants. Um, and it, it seems like from what you're saying that a lot of universities, they focus almost exclusively on the research part because that's essentially what brings in the money because that's that's what gets money from government. I, I mean, would that be an accurate way to describe it? Yes. I mean, I think, you know, to, to get into, to get a job at a good university, the most important thing to do is to get uh, good uh, publications in high-ranking journals. The universities are also in this game with the uh, publishers who have interest in maintaining you know the, the game of journals and prestigious journals for which they charge exorbitantly high amounts of money and for which they don't pay their uh, writers and their reviewers and for which they make enormous amounts of money locking this stuff up so the whole system is run in a way that is monopolistic in a way that is extremely wasteful a, a, a deeply sad reality about the system is that People who partake in it think that they're, you know, that they think that they're outsmarting the system. They think that they're getting their end of from it. It's really the other way around. It's it's actually that. So the end result of this is that you end up focusing all of your time and your energy on producing content effectively for these journals that are 
read by nobody that are hidden behind uh, paywalls uh, that charge exorbitant fees to universities. But effectively, the accreditation institutions that give universities their uh, accreditation and their status and their ranking and so on, these institutions work along with the publishers on ensuring that uh, universities need to continue to, to to judge their professors by how much content they produce for these journals and by how much access they provide for their uh, university students and professors into those journals. And so the sad thing is people think that they're they're benefiting from the system because they're advancing in it. But ultimately, the sad thing is you're working to produce things that don't really add value, except in that they're being used in this industrial production of academic gibberish, essentially. You know, nobody really uh, reads what is written in academic journals, but you have to publish in these journals that are not read by nobody in order to get to keep your job. And your university has to keep taking money from your students and paying for access to those journals. So the fact that, you know, the success of universities, I think, is separated from the market means that universities can afford to indulge in these bureaucratic games rather than focusing on providing uh, value to students, you know, instead of thinking about how do we make this the cheapest and most effective and most productive use of a student's time, teach them the most, they're engaged in these games of publishing in journals and making sure that we get into those journals. And so you end up with the professors who are in, who are succeeding and um, getting to keep their job because they're able to publish in those journals. And it's not a very good selection criteria. It's actually, I would say, in many ways, counterproductive to or, or counter to being a good teacher and a good communicator because the level of uh, dedication and focus and the ability to spend enormous amounts of time going through the peer review process. I mean, the the process is so slow and so so ridiculous in a way in which it works. And, you know, you, you send in you send in the manuscript and you wait several months before they read it and then they uh, turn it to a reviewer and then you wait several months and then uh, you get comments and then you send them back and you wait several months. It takes many, many months to work on a piece of uh, paper that's going to then get downloaded by eight people in 20 years, you know? It's it's astonishing. And, and you can see that uh, in, in order to be able to do this, you know, you're not going to be able to focus on being a good, effective communicator of uh, whatever it is that you're teaching at university. What it sounds like is that there's in the free market, you have an objective metric, whether or not people buy or buy your product. But in in the university system, essentially, you are ultimately satisfying some government bureaucrat, um, whether or not they're giving grants or um, providing student loans or something like that. They get to decide instead of the market. And that seems to be the big difference here and what, what's caused the university to sort of get into the system that you've described. Yeah. And I think a very important point to stress uh, so far, you know, we've focused on student experience and the, the financial distortion to the uh, student side of the university. But it's important to remember when thinking about the peer review process from the professor's side and from the side of the research, I, I think an excellent way of trying to understand the dysfunction is to try and imagine if we had peer review 
as a mechanism for selecting anything else in our life. So imagine if we had uh, computers designed by peer review. Imagine if government decided that you know we can't just let anybody make computers or make software. We need to have a committee of software producers that meets and agrees on each other's software. You know, we have to get say the twelve largest software producers on 12 operating systems, they each need to present their software for a vote on the central software committee. This is effectively how academic research is judged. Peer review, originally, the idea of a peer review journal at a time when paper was extremely expensive and printing was not easily available and uh, physical libraries were, you know, required going out of your home and you know, sometimes bracing the rain and the mud, getting into places. In in, in that kind of time, uh, being able to say that a group of, say, physicists or economists or uh, chemists have looked at this and studied it, and they've selected the good articles, they've only selected good articles with a specific quality for you to read. Developing that kind of institution in that kind of time made sense because when you bought a peer-reviewed journal, you got the idea that as opposed to, say, the newspaper, which was, which was just uh, typed up by one guy and edited by another guy, you're getting experts in a specific field who spent uh, serious time putting a lot of thought into these articles before they put it in the newspaper. You can see the value back then. But now, peer review has become effectively a peer-only review process. Effectively, things that are published in peer-reviewed journals are read by nobody. Uh, nobody really pays whatever it is, 20 or 30 or $40 that they charge for these articles. Nobody outside of academia reads them. And so effectively, you have a, um, a closed circle that ends up deciding who gets to produce research. You know, in the same way, if we imagine if we apply this in the car industry, where you ended up with three car producers or uh, a few car producers who are able to get together and have to approve each other's plans. Imagine if we had something like this in the car industry. Um, you know, you can you could quickly see how this would be very very good for the car industry, but uh, not very good for the car drivers and passengers who are going to be helpless to this monopoly. Once we've moved to the era of government control of universities and government financing of universities, and you've made peer review into this sacred almost uh, institution that is the voice of science that is the answer of science that is the answer of that is the voice of uh, in, uh, dispassionate scientific objective analysis as it is presented then you've created an enormous incentive for uh, people to capture the system and it, it's naturally going to be captured because people in the system are going to end up being a group of people that approve each other's work and that continue to focus on assessing the work and the success of the work based on how it serves their agendas. In other words, if getting a license to produce a car or getting a license to make a software was inherent on getting the approval of existing software producers, then software producers are not going to be thinking about the benefits of the consumer first. They're going to be thinking about themselves first. Or satisfying whoever gives them the money. But in this case, that's the criteria by which they're judged. So that's uh, 
And so you can yeah. see, you you can see how this then leads to the group thing, and then how it leads to this um these this march down dead end rabbit holes of silly mainstream analysis in many topics, in particular, you know, we know economics and nutrition. Once you've gotten a group of people in academia who have promoted a specific theory or a specific school of thought, it's practically impossible to dislodge it within academia. <laughs> Because those people can't be wrong in a way that will um, cost them their salary. And so you can, you know, we've had the reality continuously disprove the Keynesian model by its own standards. You know, the, the silly Keynesian model believes that you can't have inflation and unemployment at the same time. You either have this or you have that one. And we saw that happen in many places over and over and over again. And yet people continue to teach the Keynesian academic model because the Keynesian academic model is protected from market competition. There's the peer review process that determines who gets to sit on these journals, who gets to get promoted, who gets to keep their job. Effectively, you have to toe the line in order to keep your job. And that's why in economics, we see city Keynesian economics and all of its ridiculous uh, cargo cult science mathematics continue to dominate academic research in all universities, producing completely unreadable and irrelevant garbage. The vast majority of economic research is practically read by nobody. And we see the same thing with nutrition. Nutrition, I think, is an incredible example of this. Nina Teicholz, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but she's written this incredible book, The Big Fat Surprise. And it's incredible the lengths to which industrial food producers, or fiat food as I like to call them, fiat food producers have gone in order to promote and support the presence of uh, professors and academics who support the idea that animal fats and meat are bad for you and that uh, you need to eat some grains and sugar in moderation and that industrial food is actually food and that it's all these ridiculous criminal ideas that have cost really literally billions of people their health, years of health, years of healthy life have really been sacrificed to these ideas. It's impossible to dislodge them. Even, you know, if you look around today on the internet, thousands of people from all over the world, millions maybe, are changing their lives by abandoning this industrial food, by abandoning this perspective on nutrition. And the result is, you know, their lives improve and academia is completely silent and blind to it. And you still see overweight, obese nutritionists all over the world um, haranguing people on Twitter you know, I have a PhD in nutrition and no, you should not quit eating industrial junk and you're starving yourself because you've lost uh, 50 pounds and now you can uh, run a marathon. Uh, clearly, you're unhealthy. You need to go back to looking like the nutritionist and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and eating industrial junk in balance. You know, the field of nutrition in universities is completely beyond salvation. And government guideline, guidelines are completely beyond salvation because uh, this stuff in academia is not out there by, its, by virtue of success on the market. It's out there because it's out there by fiat. And that brings up a really interesting point. I think what, what you basically summarize is that there's an orthodoxy that sort of develops. And probably because of what you said earlier is that uh, the quote-unquote experts in a particular field, their main agenda is to keep the power that they have, keep the version of reality or their research to 
sort of stay where it is. And that by protecting the status quo, you're not allowing market forces to work in these fields and allowing essentially truth to come to light. And it's ironic, of course, because college is supposed to be a place, a marketplace for ideas. But what you're describing here is the exact opposite. It's an orthodoxy that you pretty much have to subscribe to in order to go up that ladder. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the the example of nutrition, when you think about it, it's uh, think about how many people have made successful careers out of being uh, low carb, anti-industrial food, encouraging people to eat meat or encouraging people to eat more animal fat and to avoid industrial fat. There's an enormous number of people who have made careers from this on the internet, you know, Instagram influencers, Twitter influencers, ex-nutritionists, uh, ex-qualified nutritionists, ex-doctors, and, and doctors as well. But you don't see any academic department leading this. Like, Can you think of any university or any prominent academic university uh, professor who has spent years successfully uh, publishing in academia in and showing results and uh, succeeding with this? You don't. You know, these people, if, once they realize this stuff, they leave the system and they, uh, you know, they start their own businesses around this. They might start a, a brand of food products or a restaurant or, uh, you know, a Twitter account or an Instagram page around this uh, Facebook page. They'll have their own audience, their own website, whatever. You can have all of these things, but it's impossible to build a career out of producing valuable nutrition research that helps people in their life within academia. You look at all academic nutritionists and they're still peddling the same criminal garbage about, you know, eat your six to 10 ratios of grain every day and avoid fat and use low fat industrial food. It's all everything, you know, it's it's all about replacing real animal foods with industrial sludge, basically, which is cheap to produce. And this is all that universities can offer. That That's really all that they can offer. And very, 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 very few university professors are able to buck this trend or to publish anything against it. And I think, you know, obviously we see this with Bitcoin as well, but I don't need to tell you about that. No, no, we don't. I, w- I want to go back to this idea that college has become a consumption good. Do you think that's what happens when you have basically the money printer come in? Like, is is that what it turns into? What, what was once uh, a good that could help you become a better thing becomes more like a, something to have fun with? Yeah, I think, you know, one aspect of it is, of course, the flip side of the fact that you're subsidizing college and that it has this halo around it of, you know, college good, um, degree good. This this is one aspect of it. Um, But also, I think, you know, the flip side of the fact that uh, where where you bring that subsidy from, it comes from the devaluation of the currency, which, as I discussed in the Bitcoin standard, incentivizes people toward more consumption, more present orientation and less focus on the future. And I think in this regard, you could see college as an, as an experience, uh, as a consumer good, because you look at a lot of people that go into college, you know, you look at the life that they live during college, uh, you know, the amount of hard work that they have to do and the life that they get to enjoy. You do that from 18 to 22, and then you find yourself, uh, you know, 22 to 30, living a much rough, rougher life. It, it, it could be the case, obviously not always, but in many cases, that is the case. And so if, you, if that was the case, then, you know, that was a consumption good. And in fact, even if that was not the case, of course, it could be a consumption good compared to the alternative of you not spending any time in college, you know, spending the time 
uh, in an actual uh, business in the real world, making actual money. All right. So looking to the future, supposing that we do get on the Bitcoin standard, how do you think college education changes? I think first thing is the, the, this kind of intellectual uh, mafia that has captured research in most fields. Well, I don't know about most fields, but I can assume that it is very similar just by looking at the few that I have developed some kind of knowledge about. This idea that there is one school of thought that's just going to capture all the funding and then everybody just publishes completely irrelevant and pointless uh, uh, papers that just discuss irrelevant details uh, that question nothing of these assumptions. I think we'd get out of that and we'd have a free market in uh, economic research in general. But I think, you know, this is already emerging. The the Internet is already routing around this stuff. Uh, You know, people in all individual fields, they they don't wait for college, uh, for university and academic journals to publish their uh, articles in order for them to learn about what is going on. It's it's true in pretty much everywhere. You learn what is going on from many other sources, but not this one. And, you know, the internet is providing us with all kinds of different sources and different ways of communicating information and of research. And I think, you know, what what I see is in the uberification uh, of education uh, in a sense of uh, getting rid of the taxi cab license commissions and all of these intermediaries whose jobs become more important than the uh, actual service being offered. You know, the, the people who owned the taxicab uh, medallions at some point, you know, they the, the medallions were worth a million dollars and uh, they were extremely, it's an extremely profitable thing to have because the workers and the riders are essentially waking up every morning and giving a part of their money to somebody who paid somebody for a license many years ago. And it's just, it's, it's massively inefficient. I think education is... Uh, like that in a sense. So I think the internet is going to allow us to route around that in that people who want to learn things will be able to learn them directly from individuals and from people. Uh, And people who want to teach will uh, find ways of reaching uh, these people directly. And research, on the other hand, you know, the the same people, of course, can carry research. And I think there will be uh, many healthier ways of financing research in a world in which we don't subsidize it with uh, government money. I think individuals, private companies, uh, all kinds of institutions uh, like universities will finance research uh, in all kinds of different ways. And, and you know, we saw this. There's an, there's an incredible book that I highly recommend on this, and it's called The Economic Laws of Scientific Research. It's by Terence Keeley and mentions enormous uh, amount of useful information on this issue, one of which is... Uh, you know, England had the Industrial Revolution, even though it was the one European country that spent nothing on subsidizing uh, scientific research. Uh, all the other European countries had all these uh, government-supported and subsidized institutions for uh, scientific research. But it was England that made the steam engine and the Industrial Revolution and, and um, that offered an enormous number of advances in science and an enormous number of important scientists without there having to be government subsidies. And in fact, you know, when you look back, you see that a few scientists and geniuses were supported by taxpayers. It was usually either they financed themselves, they had their own businesses and they carried their research on the side, or they would be financed by, you know, rich patrons. But uh, 
They never held a gun to somebody's head and told them, uh, you know, you have to pay me for my research from your tax money. So I think uh, we'll have a much healthier model when it is subject to market competition. Yeah, I, I think what you're suggesting is that, you know, research based on profit motive tends to do a lot better than research based on government grants. Is, is that what you're saying? Exactly. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about what you uh, sort of mentioned before, like what does education look like? And you were talking about the internet sort of routing around the current educational industrial complex. And the one example that I can think of, uh, at least from the industry that I'm familiar which, with, uh, which is programming, is that you have a lot of coding boot camps, uh, which are something like six weeks. And at the end of six weeks, you're pretty much a developer, which is a way better deal than four years of college getting a CS degree, which is going to cost you four years and a lot more money. Like, do you see that for other occupations? Is, is that the direction that we're going to go in as sort of the subsidies for these universities go away with a Bitcoin standard? I think so. We'll see the specialization and increase in productivity manifest in these, you know, short, specific to the point programs and courses that you can take and establish your own uh, knowledge. I think we're likely moving away from certification and degrees and more toward learning for the sake of learning. So in, in my website, safedean.com, you know, I offer courses. I teach courses on economics and I teach them directly to students. You know, I like to interact with students as much as I can. And we uh, have seminars, we have emails. The way that I look at it is, okay, I could devise exams and I could charge people more for an exam maybe, but I would really much rather spend my time. And I think my readers and my students would much rather that I spend my time making another course rather than, you know, spend it correcting essays. I think ultimately, you know, if you, if you think you need to learn more about something rather than just uh, thinking about uh, writing essays and exams, uh, you know, just read more about it, R write publicly. You don't have to write for a teacher who assesses you. I mean, obviously there is value in that. And I'm, and I'm thinking of introducing uh, something like this at some point that I'd have a, a, an individual program where I, uh, we meet individually with the student and uh, discuss the material and then they write an essay about it. But I think there's an enormous amount of value to be had just from basic ability to download uh, video or audio lectures and class notes and learn a topic. The, the teacher experience is very valuable. The ability to have somebody who knows what's going on, hold your hand and guide you through something is extremely valuable. And the internet allows us to do this extremely uh, cheaply. It allows us to make this scale massively. So I, I have a class, you know, in my class, we'll have 10 hours of lectures and 10 hours of discussion. So 20 hours and you can you know i post these online and then anybody can buy this course at any point in time and watch it and get that experience it's it's quite close to being in the uh, classroom when you're listening to the lecture and then we, we have the weekly discussion sessions which are live every week so i do these every thursday and i'm going to be adding a couple more wherein Anybody taking the courses at any time can jo join the discussion session live and talk about the courses. And I think, you know, the number of people that I can interact with this way is so much larger than what I could interact with if I was in a brick and mortar university. And I think, you know, the economies of scale here are um, much better. And I think we're going to see more and more people realize this. Ultimately, you just want to give people uh, valuable information. In my case, I teach people economics. In the case of coding, you know, you spend a few weeks, you learn valuable skills from coding. If, if, if you have these skills, 
you can go out there and you can work. You don't need to prove that you have them with a degree. You know, the work itself is its own proof. And more and more of work is going to become like that. And more and more of education is going to become um, self-directed and, you know, lifelong. It's not just something that you do in uh, for four years where you go and uh, hang out with some professors who tell you things. Your entire life, you're learning new things, taking new courses, talking to new people on new different topics. I think this is how I see the internet fixing this. Yeah, it's interesting because there are a lot of jobs in the you know economy today that are essentially credentialed. You have to have this degree in order to take this job. Uh, but I think what you're suggesting is that maybe a lot of those are created by fiat money and that really it should be about whether or not you can do the job. And it's one thing to have the experience to do that and another to have this sort of credential that gets corrupted by fiat money. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, sometimes when I say something like this, people will tell me, well, so you think you don't want to, would you go to a brain surgeon who doesn't have a degree? And the answer is, I'm not against the the concept of a degree. There will be degrees and it's it's perfectly it's perfectly predictable and normal that you would get several institutions that issue degrees or that you would get jobs that require some kind of degree. But if it were to be the case, then it would have to really demonstrate value. It would have to be one out there on the market, not by throwing people in jail, you know? If having a degree that says I have a degree in brain surgery makes you a better brain surgeon than somebody who doesn't have a degree, then people will look for that and people will just not go to somebody who doesn't have it. I mean, at the end of the day, you're not compelled to go to a brain surgeon who doesn't have a specific degree. In in a free market, the way that I see it, you know, nobody goes to anybody who uh, wants to operate on their brain unless they have some pretty convincing evidence that this person knows what they're talking about. I, I don't necessarily think that a university degree is the best evidence. And I think in, in a completely free market, in a healthcare and education system, it's far more likely that in that kind of system, you know, you would have universities develop their own surgeons with their own programs. Maybe it doesn't have to go through college at all. Maybe it doesn't involve a college. And maybe 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 it's just a process of an apprenticeship. Maybe that's how it works. You, you go as a 16-year-old into a hospital and you start... Um, helping a doctor by washing his stuff and silently watching him. And then if for a year you're helpful enough and you never bother him and <laughs> you never break anything, then maybe he'll start talking to you when you're 17. If you stick around for another couple of years, maybe he'll start teaching you how to do his job. And a few more years, if you're good enough, you know, he'll start letting you do it. And yeah, then you could see that you could become a, surge, a surgeon uh, much faster that way, I would imagine, than going through the uh, all of the rituals of uh, modern fiat education. Uh, the, the, these kind of systems, you know, they can emerge through apprenticeship. And, you know, the, the university, uh, the hospital that has a, a reputation to keep has, uh, you know, they only hire the right surgeons and they trust those sur- surgeons to hire their replacements. You trust them to operate on people brains and then you also trust them to hire their own replacements for to operate on people's brains it's not necessarily it's not necessary that degrees are involved but even if degrees are involved so what that can happen in a free market there's no reason why it can't yeah it's interesting uh what, what you talked about just reminded me of something that i read a long time ago which is about how 
you get unemployed people employed. And almost always what the government tries to do is they put them in a class and train them for some other job uh, through some sort of education. And those almost always are much worse than throwing those people into jobs in some sort of apprenticeship program. Those are almost almost always way better and are much easier for not just the candidate, but for the people that are training them and so on in order to get them to be good at a particular skill is just to try again instead of learning in a classroom. Um, I, I suppose that's sort of the world that you're suggesting we would be in with a Bitcoin standard. You said it very well, yeah. Uh, Let's uh, move on to sort of like the final questions. How does the current college educational industrial complex end? What what do you think happens and how do you think it finally crumbles? Oh, I don't know. I I don't have crystal ball. But I mean, uh, for me, it uh, crumbled when I just moved on with my life and set up my own website and started teaching people online. I don't like to think in terms of collectivist solutions. I just think of it individually. And I think maybe that's what happens. More and more people start realizing that uh, their time is far better used in more productive avenues and places making things of more value. I, I've been to your site and I've actually down, I, I've paid for a bunch of the courses and, uh, courses and I've enjoyed them and all that. Can you tell us a little bit more about safety.com and what you teach there? I I teach economics from the Austrian perspective, from the Austrian tradition. I teach also on the economics of Bitcoin. So, so far, I've done four courses over the last year. My website has been around for a year and a month now. I've During that time, I've taught four courses, which you can still take. I did one course on Bitcoin, Economics 21, on the Bitcoin standard. So that was a a deeper dive into the Bitcoin standard, where I go into the readings uh, that I discussed in the book. We, we discussed the topic in much more detail. And then I did the second course, Economics 31, which was based on the papers which are going to be turned into the fiat standard uh, soon. And uh, then I also made, then I made the uh, principles of economics courses, Economics 11 and Economics 12. And these are, these are basically meant as an intro to economics from the Austrian perspective. And they are the uh, genesis of my textbook, which I'm working on right now. So this just starts from, you know, Karl Menger's subjective value, what is uh, economics, and uh, working your way up through Mises and human action and all of the main important concepts in um, economics. The, the, these are the two courses, Economics 11 and 12, which I, uh, I highly recommend for anybody who's interested in Austrian economics. It's, it's definitely not, it's not the final word on Austrian economics, but it's a good, a good intro to the main topics that will give you a good sense of where to read and what to read and what is going on in Austrian economics in general. Yeah, and I, I can testify to the effectiveness of that. I, I know for myself, like uh, looking at Austrian e- economics and then seeing a book like Human Action and being completely intimidated. It's like, how the heck am I going to learn all this? Safety definitely takes you through uh, in a much more friendlier way the entire corpus of pretty much Austrian economics literature uh, in nice bite-sized chunks. It felt so much better uh, going that way instead of reading the entirety of uh, Mises or Rothbard or something like that. So I I totally recommend it. Another question for you, five years from now, what's your best and worst case scenario for Bitcoin? Best case scenario would be complete and final capitulation of all governmental and private shitcoins. And demonetization of everything, money becomes just like uh, the sewage system of a town where the entire planet 
settles with one another every 10 minutes on the blockchain. And there are no other monetary assets. And I think, you know, in this kind of world, there'd be no uh, inflation, there'd be no recessions, there'd be no business cycles, there'd be just continuous, relentless, slow economic growth and uh, limited, uh, neutered government unable to get much done. Yeah, obviously five years is way too early for that. But that you asked for the best scenario. I'm not saying it'll happen in five years, but you know, best case scenario. The worst case scenario, I guess, I would say, you know, the worst case scenario would be uh, Bitcoin continues to, you know, it, it would have to be several things going at this, going wrong at the same time in the same way. So running a Bitcoin node becomes harder and harder. So the network becomes less decentralized. There are fewer people running nodes. Also, for whatever reason, people lose interest in Bitcoin. It could be, I don't think it would be necessarily government bans because Bitcoin is resilient enough that even if governments ban it, even without it being uh, worth a lot, and even without it having a lot of uh, a lot of people holding it, it can still survive undercover and then continue to go on. But I think what would be um, what would be worse than government bans would be complete apathy. If for whatever reason you know government manages to uh, get its monetary house in order and um, everything becomes much better, then maybe people just lose interest in Bitcoin and then the price stops going up a lot and then more and more people lose interest and then it becomes less and less secure. So conflation of a reduction in the number of nodes, a reduction in the price, a reduction in interest and eventually fading into irrelevance or uh, attacks. And 20 years from now, what what do you think uh, education looks like based on your experience in the education? I think it becomes a, uh, I think 20 years from now it becomes far more uh, micro than it is today that um, uh, you'd have individual uh, teachers and individual students from all over the world um, and you'd have small classes or individual guidance being the norm done online and in person and so you'd have a lot of online instruction and then you'd also have some uh, and you'd have it supplemented with in-person classes and interaction. And I think that would tend to be more of a peer-to-peer nature. I think you'll see more of a, you know, independent professors going directly to their students and essentially through their own platforms uh, rather than through large institutions. Yeah, it's interesting because I kind of already see that happening. There's already a ton of YouTube gurus that will take students and you can learn something like the Wim Hof method or, you know, a particular, uh, you know, if you want to train for MMA or whatever. So I can definitely see that happening. So Safety, where can people find you? What, how can they see what you're up to and stuff? Safedean.com is my website and uh, Twitter on at Safedean. And uh, my website is uh, going to soon have a big revamp and I'm going to be building a, a new uh, members area for everybody who takes my courses or signs up and that's the other thing i'm going to be writing my next book the fiat standard i'm going to start uh, sending it out in uh, bi-weekly emails so you sign up and every two weeks you get a new chapter of the book as i uh, finish it up and you can join the members area where we'll be discussing my books as well as uh, the courses and all manner of issues related to bitcoin and uh, austrian economics and low time preference and uh, stakes and uh, the like. 
<laughs> All right. Well, I, I look forward to your version of the school virtual school of Athens. Thank you, Safetine. It was a pleasure, and we got to do this. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jimmy. Have a good day. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Safety in a Moose can be found at @safetine on Twitter and safetine.com. Until next time, fiat the lenda est.